Hi, I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This past May, New York hosted what is probably the biggest auction season ever, selling more than $2.7 billion worth of art. Last week, the traveling circus touched down in London with multi-million dollar art sales at Phillips, Sotheby's, and Christie's. So before the art market goes into hibernation for the summer, we decided to revisit our episode decoding the complex sociology of auctions. That's kind of a fascinating thing about these auctions is because they seem very spontaneous, but in fact, they're really orchestrated. And it's this tension between the order and something unexpected, that this auction magic that can happen and everybody kind of lives for those moments. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Okay, so get your paddles ready. New York is about to kick off what may be the biggest auction season ever. Over the next two weeks, as much as $2.6 billion worth of art is expected to be sold across glitzy evening sales at Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips. The offerings include a portrait of Marilyn Monroe by Andy Warhol, a billboard-sized Basquiat that could fetch $70 million, and Richter's, Picasso's, and Rothko's galore. Auctions are the most public and visible part of the art market, but they are also among the most misunderstood. There's a ton of behind-the-scenes preparation, psychology, and game theory that goes into pulling off a successful sale. Because it is a game, and to succeed as both a seller and a buyer, you need to know the rules. So we called in Artnet News Executive Editor Julie Halpern to help us decode some of these rules and understand the complex sociology of auctions. And selling at $95 million. Nick, your bidder at $95 million. You never forget your first auction. Mine was a photography sale at Phillips. I was 20, and it was one of my first paid journalism gigs. I decided to wear a hot pink miniskirt and gray knee-high boots because I thought that's what people wore to auctions. I got into a bike accident on the way there and ended up walking into this Park Avenue sales room with mangled tights and a skinned knee. And when I walked inside, I felt like I was entering some sort of foreign royal court. Everyone seemed to be following an unwritten rule book about where to stand and who to talk to and how to act. There were a lot of customs that I knew nothing about, but I did know I was interested. Auctions are the most visible and seemingly transparent part of the art market. It's really the only opportunity we have to see art sales happen right there out in the open. But they're also theatrical and highly choreographed. So much goes into pulling off a major evening sale that we never see. And even what you do see can sometimes be so obscure that it requires a decoder ring to understand. So to help us pull back the curtain, we've asked three experts to tell us what is really going on. A veteran auction reporter. My name is Katya Kazakina. I am a senior reporter here at Artnet, and I've covered auctions for, I'm scared to say, 16 years. A former top auction executive at Sotheby's and Christie's and now powerhouse art advisor. My name is Amy Capalazzo, and I... I'm a founder and principal of Art Intelligence Global. And an independent art advisor. I'm Todd Levin, and I'm the director of Levin Art Group in New York City. I asked Katya if she remembered her first time covering a sale. I, I, I don't, I know, I don't think so. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, 
I do remember my first sale. It was Bobby Short. I don't know what that means. Bobby Short, the musician who passed away right around then, and his estate was being sold oh. at Christie's. And so it was like, I actually really liked it because for me, I was not particularly like art market reporter at the time. So I entered it like just a reporter. You know, I went there, I interviewed all the people there and it was really a fun auction because there were a lot of his fans. There were a lot of like just New Yorkers who loved him and his music and the objects he had in his house. And so it was really like a man on the street kind of a story with an auction angle to it. I wasn't too intimidated by that because it made sense to me. And then in the spring, I went to the big evening sales. What I do remember very well was that I was at Phillips covering an auction and I was so lost. I was so confused, you know, standing on the sidelines and looking at the sea of people, very well-dressed, very intimidating, very handsome crowd. And it was still Phillips de Puri, and it was down in the meatpacking district and it had like a very kind of a clubby, fun atmosphere and these Phillips Stark chairs, you know, the ghost chairs. So it was very chic. And I was just standing there trying to figure out you know, who was anyone? I had no idea. And so I positioned myself next to Josh Bear. I was just like, shamelessly ask him, who's that? And who's this? And who's that? And he, I guess, just couldn't say no. And he was very generous with information. <laughs> but I couldn't even pretend that I knew anything or understood. I had no idea. And then at a later point, I tagged along with Lindsay to, I think it was a Christie's sale. And we were standing in the back of the room. She was like, here's Larry Gagosian, here's Neymar, here's Mugrabis, here's that, here's that. And I was like, how do you even know? How can you recognize them in the sea of people? And she said, the trick is to recognize the backs of their heads. I have to say that walking into an auction house during the big evening sales, I guess it's one of my favorite kind of things of the beat. There's a lot of excitement kind of butterflies a little bit in your stomach. You kind of know the order and you know what kind of may happen. And yet you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who you're going to bump into in the lobby. It's a little bit also like a reunion because you see the same people, the same players, and they may not know who you are or they may. You recognize the same characters season after season. And it's nice because a lot of people come from Europe. And so most likely you haven't seen them since six months earlier. And then you may bump into Toby Maguire or Woody Allen or like a celebrity here and there, you know, depending on the sale. It's very exciting. It's a little bit like a fashion show, too. You know, there is a lot of minks and there's a lot of heels and stilettos. And it's very glamorous. I love this scene and these moments of arrival. And everybody is like trying to sort out the latest, you know, arrangements, people behind the scenes, whatever they're doing. And then... Inside, as a journalist covering that, you're trying to get the lay of the land as quickly as you can. Just like survey the room, just walk around, try not to drink too much champagne. <laughs> I'm joking, but at Sotheby's, at some point, they started serving champagne right before the sale. And I always find it very confusing because do they want to get everyone drunk and just like buy things that it's they like don't a casino. intend to? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, you just kind of like try to figure out like who is in the room, you know, and then go into the room and figure out who's sitting in the front room, you know, as best you can, who is sitting where, because as a journalist, again, you never at a good spot. You're always either to the side, you don't have great views or you're in the back. Over the years, you kind of realize there is like a certain order. And that's kind of a fascinating thing about these auctions is because they seem very spontaneous, but in fact, they're really orchestrated. And it's this tension between the order and something unexpected, that this auction magic that can happen. And everybody kind of lives for those moments, you know, the auction houses, the sellers, the buyers, the journalists. When they happen, it's really incredible. When you enter the auction room, one thing that is very striking as an outsider is that everyone seems to know where to go and where to stand. It's sort of like a baseball stadium. Some people seem to have season tickets and always sit in the same spot. I asked Katya to explain how the room is assembled. Like so much about auctions, it's all strategic. Let's see. So, you know, you have, it's called bird's nest is that area on the either side of the auctioneer. It's kind of an elevated platform where staffers stand and take calls. The auctioneer is, of course, in the center. And then in front of him, there's a sea of humanity. There is also a hierarchy and order there of how people are sitting and where they sit. The biggest clients, they get a certain number of tickets every season. And some people like to sit in exactly the same spot. So, for example... At Sotheby's in the front row, you would always see the Neymats, you know, with their children and grandchildren and mothers. Then there is like Valentino always sits like next to them, also in the front row of Sotheby's. You know, certain dealers like Larry Gagosian sits like on the side, kind of maybe seven, eight rows in. So some people want to be in the view of the auctioneer in the center, and some people really don't want to be seen in that center aisle, around the center aisle. And so some people may want to be seated in a place where they have a view of a certain staffer and they can give them a signal. So it may seem weird why somebody sits like in the middle or in the back, but usually there is some logic to it. Or like some people really hate each other. And, you know, it's funny, but it's like, it's very intricate arranging these people. It's like planning a wedding, but it's like 10 times worse, probably. And auction houses have teams, huge teams of people who are dealing with this stuff. For some people, seating is more of a practicality. For an art advisor like Todd Levin, it's not theater. It's just business. I have a specific seat that I like. I feel that gives me a certain eyeline to the auctioneer. And if I want their attention, I don't have to wave my hand around like a crazy person, even just to get their attention, let alone to bid. I tend to bid very surreptitiously. It's a very simple nod of my head. I don't like people to know my business or see what I'm doing because there are sometimes other people very close to me, you know, a couple feet away bidding on the same item. And I'm not interested in getting into a mine is bigger than yours, you know, sort of situation at auction. I just prefer to stay super focused on what I'm doing. So returning to the same seat, you know, allows me in advance that knowledge. I'm very much that person who is comfortable with that foreknowledge of I know what to expect. And so in the heat of the moment, when you are doing the physical auction, you have to be open to all sorts of variabilities. 
And if I can remove a number of those variabilities that might make somebody slightly uncomfortable or anxious or whatever, that allows me just more energy to focus on the job that I'm hired to do, which is to hopefully get the very best work at the very best price on behalf of my client. The bidders up in the skyboxes might be drinking champagne, but journalists, art dealers, and auction house staff are back down on the ground and they have a job to do. Well, again, so this is like another point of tension in these auctions is that, you know, they're public events, right? Now they're transmitted, live streaming and everything. But there's also, as we know, the auction process, the art market is very opaque. So for example, you know, you're not allowed to take pictures of people bidding or of clients of these auction houses. You can't really sit down because you're not a guest, you're not a client, you're a reporter, so you're standing the whole time. It's very important to wear the right shoes, by the way. Mm. And uh, that's very difficult because you also want to wear stilettos and look good, but you have to stand for three hours in those stilettos. And I remember there was one time I was in such pain and I was standing next to Charlotte Burns and she had a pair of extra slippers and she literally gave me her slippers. I love it. Because I was in tears. And we will start here at 35 million pounds. Now, one of the most important figures in this whole production is the auctioneer. Most people outside of the art market might consider this person a figurehead without much power. But in fact, the auctioneer knows more than almost anyone. And they each have their own unique rituals to prepare for a sale the way an athlete might prepare for a game. Oral Box, a watch auctioneer for Phillips, once told us he drinks a glass of milk before every sale to oil the gearbox. Auctioneers, they have also rituals that they follow every sale. And they're quite superstitious, in fact. I remember I interviewed UC Pelkanen at Christie's and I could say like he has like a collection of suits that he always wears when he auctioneers, that he used the same gavel for 22 years. And he's had like the same senior sales clerk who's his right-hand man who's always next to him, who travels to every sale. Christopher Burge was to have like this shot before, I don't know what he was drinking, but a shot of something strong before each sale. Yuzi would go like have a lunch in this one place and like get into the zone and he has this purple tie that he always wears. It's interesting. The ultimate source of the auctioneer's power is in something called the book, where all essential elements of a sale are written down. The book will record who is expected to bid in the sale and what the reserve price is for each lot, which is the minimum price a particular work is allowed to sell for. Amy Capalazzo, a former rainmaker at both Sotheby's and Christie's, says the secrets of the book are fiercely guarded. There was an old, like, hieroglyphic pre-digital book, if you will, like in the Christopher Burge days at Christie's, where even the reserve numbers were written in code. Oh my God. Yeah, it was really cool. That would be like the OG way of understanding how the book was written so that only the auctioneer knew what the reserves were or another auctioneer from the same house might know the code because there's sort of a common code used, but it was a bit like Morse code or something really mysterious. Yeah. So more recently, there's sort of a page per lot and the lot will say what the estimate is. There'll be any sort of, you know, sale room notes. Like, please note something that wasn't in the cataloging when the um, sale went live online. So please note this work is signed and dated 1960 on Verso, like something that was somehow missed. And then usually there's a reserve price. And because there's a number of meetings the day of the sale, the auctioneer will get a listing from the bid department of who's registered to bid by telephone or if there's any absentee bids that were placed. 
if there's internet bidders that have registered for that lot, et cetera. So the auctioneer has a pretty good sense going into the sale where the interest is. When the interest is thin on a particular lot, it really helps to know in which direction to look, right? When all the hands are going up in the room and on the phone and the internet's blinking, I mean, that's really great and everything's going wonderfully. But if there's just one or two bidders, it really is helpful for the theatrics of the auctioneer to know in which direction to look. So that's why the book helps guide them a little bit about who's interested or who's bidding. And also it's just sort of to not miss a bid, right? So Oliver Barker, for example, principal auctioneer of Sotheby's, very, very talented, wonderful guy, would be up there. And it helps to know that you're going to look to your far left with that phone bidder standing, which might be slightly in his blind spot. And to know that he should look in that direction, since it's a little unnatural to crane his head that hard, knowing that person will be phone bidding helps the theater be a little better rather than someone going, oh, over here, over here, because it looks like Ollie missed the bid, you know, so it's, it's much better. Auctioneers aren't the only people who have to put a lot of prep work into a sale. Everyone at the auction house has a lot riding on what happens. They can make commissions as high as 26%. Specialists will also work overtime to line up bidders and make sure they're ready to make an offer when the time comes. If you know a client is interested and they're not physically present and they prefer to be on the telephone rather than to bid online, let's say, then you set up a phone bid in advance so that you know you're going to call them, you know what number to call them at, you can give them an approximate time, you never know an exact time because the sale could be dragging on if it's going very well, but you give them a window where you think you're going to call them then. And you then call them a couple of lots before the lot that they're interested in comes up. And have you ever had a scenario where like the connection is bad or they miss the call or like it does seem like there's a lot of chances for things to go awry? Yeah, I mean, it used to happen more often when things were just more rickety in the technology world. But, you know, you can have a drops call if someone's on their cell phone. I've spoken to people many times who are on airplanes and even in the best of circumstances, things can go wrong there. What I would try to do is get an emergency bid in case the line goes down. What's a bid you'd be happy to own it at, even if you weren't in the middle of the chase? So your max. Usually the max bid is more than the emergency <laughs> bid because, you know, but usually when you get them on the phone, they're a bit more committed to being there. But it's sort of like, what's your emergency bid in case the line drops? It's just sort of like a safe number that you'd love to own at that price, even if you weren't in control at that moment. And so one thing I've always wondered is like, what do you say to them during the downtime when you have your hand over the receiver? And it seems like you're like whispering in their ear about how beautiful it is. What are those conversations? Don't forget that you're on phone bank with lots of other people also talking to people. So sometimes the hush is to Mm. protect the privacy. I don't want anyone in the room who reads lips well to know what I'm saying. But also more importantly, someone standing a foot and a half away from me is also on the telephone. So you just want to create a level of discretion so they can speak to their client and not hear you or not hear the conversation, et cetera. I mean, I often call clients well in advance many times before the phone bid to prepare them. This is it. Let's go. Like, get ready to run the race. Let's, you know, put them in the right frame of mind. So I'm not just calling them cold in real time a minute and a half before that particular lot is coming up. I might be talking about who else is bidding, the bids from the room. It's a dealer. Seems to be one of my colleagues from Asia on the telephone. You know, I might tell them a little bit of a play-by-play of what's going on in terms of who other bidders are. I might be talking about the relative value of the piece in relation to how the rest of the sale is doing. Like, seems like this kind of classical post-war thing is really flying from other works that have come up before it, for example. Mm. Or pop seems to be doing well tonight. I mean, I would say most of phone bidding in the broadest sense, not in the very attenuated evening sale, big lot sort of thing, but just like a general 
phone bidding for any of the departments or, you know, you're buying a print for $30,000 or photograph or a diamond ring or something. It's, it's an administrative function. So if I could demystify it, I would say to all of you, there's very few people who get on the phone with a client and actually have control at that moment. But people like Amy and Todd do have control in that moment. They've developed close relationships with their clients, and part of their job is to prepare and coach them ahead of a sale. As a former Sotheby's executive, Amy is particularly adept at encouraging her clients to open their wallets wide. If someone really needs this piece for their collection, like it's a collection-elevating work of art, like it entering their collection would raise the whole pond. It's that good. I really try to prepare them for that because it means you're really probably going to have to spend more than you think and... Your palms are going to sweat. It's going to make you nervous. You want to prepare them not to chicken out at the last minute to really run the race to the end. I guess you should speak to my former colleagues because there was some sense that I was famous in what I would possibly say to someone on the telephone at that moment. Which is what? I was telling this one person, he was trying to buy something for his wife that his wife really liked. And I was like, you can't stop now. She delivered those beautiful children for you. What are you going to do? You got, you, you, come on. You've got to like, you're not not getting this work. Like you're joking, really. You got to keep going. You just have to get this. Three beautiful children. You're going to let this go? Come on, let's go. Did he he buy it, man? Let's get it. Yes, I did. (laughs) You know, it was getting crazy. I was like, one more. Come on, one more. (laughs) Oh, that's incredible. Sometimes I remind people that this is a generational purchase. You're only going to do this once. You only have one shot and you're only going to do it once. So let's go, you know. I'm very keenly aware that the moment that someone is on the phone bidding, this is a very high moment in their life and you want to make it very special. Like they're going to tell this story forever about, you know, I was on the phone, decided to buy that great X, whatever, from Christie Sotheby's when I was on the phone and I was, you know, and then I was talking to Amy Capalazzo and she was really pushing me and I got really, and then the hammer came down and I was lucky to get, I often prepare people hypothetically for what it will feel like not to win it. And what do you tell them? You wake up the next morning and you don't have it. How are you going to feel? If you're going to feel relieved, that's good to know. That should inform your bidding by being maybe more cautious. If you're going to feel terrible or just like, my God, I missed a once in a decade opportunity or once in a lifetime opportunity, and you're going to be really upset, then remember that when we're live on the phone of how you'll feel the next morning. Because in many cases, it's not often about the money, right? It's like an extra bid or two more or less maybe wouldn't be so impactful in that person's life financially. So it's usually more about a larger performance or performance anxiety. The situation is a little different for an art advisor like Todd, whose ultimate responsibility is to the collector and not to the auction house. I'm a big believer in the same way in going to Vegas. You know, you walk in with the amount of money you're willing to lose in your pocket. And once you lose it, go see a show or have a good meal. But that's it. And I believe the same thing in an auction dynamic. Now, It doesn't have to be hard and fast. It can be within a zone as opposed to a specific number. I will not go into an auction essentially on a client's behalf with what you would refer to as like a blank check under any circumstance. That is just from my point of view, not a successful modality in the long term in terms of collecting artwork. In the heat of the moment, have you been on the phone with a client who's like, let's just go. I know we said we wouldn't, but let's throw caution to the wind. Throw caution to the wind, no. But sometimes we get to our limit and I can tell the client is maybe a combination of disappointed and thinking about maybe one more bid, in essence, might do it, depending on what the price of the work is and what the increments we're going by are. And sometimes, you know, we'll have a very quick discussion. And I would say, like, look, if you want to go one more increment for the work, 
I still feel fine that if you're holding it for the long term, it certainly makes sense in the collection from a curatorial point of view. It's a terrific work. The condition is great. We already know that. So in this case, if you're really buying it for the long term and because it's really an additive component to your collection from a curatorial point of view, one more increment is not ideal. But if you feel you want to go for it, I'm behind you. There are other times when I would have a different comment, which is you're done. You're absolutely done. Somebody else wants to pay X, including the auction house premium and the tax and all the other additional costs. Somebody wants it more than you do, and you simply have to let it go. Then there's the auction scenario every first-time attendee fears, accidentally scratching their nose or raising their arm and ending up stuck with a $5 million Monet. I asked Todd what the odds are of that actually happening. Zero. If you scratch your nose or cough or whatever. You even I've seen people, I mean, and this is an idiot move, in the middle of an ongoing auction at a high price point, right? Somebody sitting in some of the first rows sees somebody trying to enter, you know, in from the side to come in. They relate to the auction, let's say, and they have a seat for them and they start waving. And the auctioneer might immediately turn down to that person and say, do I have a bit of $5 million? The person will immediately look up and say, oh, no, no, I'm so sorry. And, you know, the auctioneer then might, depending on what the tenor of the room is in a chiding way, say, yeah, well, you were close, you know, don't wave your hand or, or whatever like that. And everybody laughs and then they go on. But if you wave your hand at somebody and the auctioneer says $5 million, you have every right to say, I'm sorry, that was not a bid. I apologize. And the auctioneer is not going to say, well, I'm sorry, you raised your hand. And so it's with you at five. And if nobody else bids, you have every right to do that. So nobody's going to be stuck. But, you know, if you keep doing it over and over and over in an auction or at multiple auctions, and the auctioneer's like dealing with you consistently, you can bet that they're going to change your seat. Because no auctioneer who has a lot of professional duties to deal with at an auction and is trying to run the most professional sale that they can and doesn't want that kind of dynamic to interrupt the flow that they're trying to establish of excitement and energy, if it's happening and you're doing that, they're going to just reseat you somewhere way at the back where you can wave your hand all you want. And if you're actually waving your hand on an auction item, you'll probably have to stand up and jump up and down. So we know waving is frowned upon, but there are also other less egregious mistakes that can reveal you as a novice in the auction room. I asked Todd to explain some of the no-nos. Not understanding uh, some of the more complex maneuvers like splitting a bid. There's a time when you can do it and a time when you can't. And knowing what the auction increments are and how to split. Explain what that means, splitting a bid. Splitting a bid is, let's say, the bidding is going by $100,000 increments, okay? And you'd like to slow down the bidding for one reason or another. You think it's in your best interest from a strategic point of view. You may ask to split the bid, which means to split the increment. Instead of going by hundreds, you might request to go by fifties. Now, somebody who doesn't know what they're doing might try to split a bid and go by tens all of a sudden. No auctioneer is going to go from $100,000 increments to $10,000 increments. They might go by $20,000 increments to 10, but they're not going to go from 100 to 10. So knowing what the kind of incremental splits might be and how to signal to the auctioneer that you're interested in splitting a bid it's their discretion. They may decide that they just want to keep powering away at the current increments and see what happens. So there's a time and a place and a way to engage that particular maneuver. And by the same token, sometimes you want to jump a bid, which is you're going by hundred thousands and you suddenly want to leap by 200, as an example, to kind of throw other people off their comfort level. Amy has her own very finely tuned strategies about how to approach bidding. 
I'm sort of an expert in this game theory. So I know when to express interest, when not to, you know, sometimes the best way to score is to just run the ball straight up the middle of the field. So like, let's not be tricky or coy or cute when you don't really need to be. Like, I think a lot of people think there's some sort of like hot finesse in doing this. And you only want to use hot finesse when the situation calls for it. Otherwise, you're just like a hot dog or a braggart. You think you're outsmarting everyone, including yourself. It's sort of dumb. So in many instances, you just take the ball straight up the field. That's the best way. In other cases, you want to be a little bit more tactical. And what does that look like? Well, it depends. If there's a lot of interest in a work and you're trying to scare off other bidders, you might go in early and jump a bid. If you think you have the winning bid, maybe you let everyone else go and then you don't bid at all because you're not assisting in bidding it up and then you just come in once finally at the end. If you know you're going to buy it no matter what, the latter is the better scenario. Hmm. If you're not sure you're going to buy it or there's a limit, but you're willing to chase, you might try to scare people a little earlier and come in sooner. Having just revealed that sense of strategy, I might change that up in given moments too. It depends on who else is bidding. In the high-stakes world of auctions, things can get wild, especially when it comes to prices. Most people remember the first time they witnessed an artwork go into the stratosphere. You know, Salvador Mundi was really pretty crazy. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we move to the Leonardo da Vinci, the Salvatore Mundi, the masterpiece by Leonardo of Christ the Saviour, previously in the collections of three kings of England. At 90 million. So that was 2017. And again, a Russian billionaire, another Russian billionaire, Dmitry Rabalovlev, consigned a work which was attributed to Leonardo da Vinci, famously Salvador Mundi. But... It was kind of the anticipation going into the sale. There was a lot of doubt. Was it a Leonardo? Was it not a Leonardo? There was a lot of skepticism. Christie's created this huge marketing campaign. There were lines around the blog of people wanting to see this painting. And there was a huge amount of anticipation. The painting was estimated at $100 million. But even within days of the sale, the top People at Christie's, they really didn't know what's going to happen. Maybe it will sell for 100 Maybe it will sell for 150 if they were lucky. You know, it was really kind of up in the air. There were a lot of naysayers. And so then when the bidding started, it just was something totally crazy. And it was like a little shaky in the beginning before it cleared 100 And then it just took off, going over $200 million, and then going over $300 million. million, ladies and gentlemen. $400 million. It ended up selling for $450 million. Nothing like this ever happened at auction, and who knows when it may repeat. Like, it was wild. Sometimes the twists and turns can be even more surprising behind the scenes. Here's Amy. I once have had someone on the phone who said, oh my God, I just bid on the wrong lot. I wanted the next one after it instead. And I was like, oh no, like they chased it to the heavens, it went crazy. I think it was estimated something like 100, 250, and it was like at 420. And they were like, oh my God, I bought the wrong lot. And then he was like, forget it, I'll buy that too. And I was like, wow, that's great. You know, that's excellent. Crazy things of all sorts can happen. Then there was another instance where I had a limit and I went significantly over. It was great that we got it. I got yelled at the next day, but it's a centerpiece in that client's home now, 10 years later. All is well that ends well. You know, it took the heat for a minute, but it was like the right thing to do. We're still close, so. I've had phone lines drop. I've had like couples fighting in the background on the phone. I've had people be in Carnegie Hall performances and they're not supposed to be on the phone and their phone being, you know, things like that. 
In the auction world, tens of millions of dollars can be spent in a single breath, which means that inside the sales room, you can't think about money the way a regular person would, or you'll drive yourself crazy. It's like a different universe. I don't think about it that way. I don't think about the money in the same way. It could be very disturbing if you start thinking about what this money can do Mm. for, you know, for the world, for poverty, for so many different issues, for environment, for violence. Who knew? I mean, like this money could be spent in many other ways, but in a way, it is what it is, you know? I suppose partially because I've been doing this for so long at this point that numbers are just numbers and however many zeros there are after the number, it doesn't register in the way that you're implying, like in terms of an emotional resonance that translates to like anxiety. Um, It doesn't translate that way. You know, I'm there to do a job. And in order to do my job well, I can't afford to be wrapped up in personal emotional feelings of anxiety about numbers being big or anything like that. That's not sensible. So if you're somebody who really gets, um, what's the word we would use, verklempt about that kind of thing, you're probably best off not being involved in an auction modality at all. The final auction mystery comes towards the end of the sale. It's been underway for a few hours, and all of a sudden, as if everyone got the same text all at once, scores of people begin streaming out the back, even though the sale isn't over. I asked Amy to solve the mystery of the great 8 p.m. departure. Well, the lots they were interested in have already passed, and they want to go to dinner. Reminds me of that famous Christopher Wool painting, you know. Christopher Wool's 1991 text painting, which says, The show is over. The audience get up to leave their seats. Time to collect their coats and go home. They turn around. No more coats and no more home. A very special thanks to Katya Kazakina, Amy Capalazzo, and Todd Levin for demystifying the wild world of high-stakes art auctions for us. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sony Manoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.